It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. This week, former special counsel Robert Mueller will appear before Congress to discuss findings from his investigation. For two years, Mueller investigated Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election and whether President Trump obstructed justice. Journalist Garrett Graff says the message from the White House is the public is no longer paying attention to the Mueller report. They're not paying attention to it because they they don't really understand it. And I think that Mueller testifying begins that moment when the country sort of has to wrestle with uh, what is actually a very damning document. How will Mueller's testimony shape public discourse, politics, and policies? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In March, former FBI Director and Special Counsel Robert Mueller submitted a report more than 400 pages long to Attorney General William Barr. Congressional Democrats weren't satisfied. They subpoenaed him to testify before two congressional committees. The testimony is slated to happen Wednesday. Lawmakers will question Mueller for about five hours. Since the report's already been released, what will the testimony reveal? Could it lead to impeachment proceedings for President Trump? How will the candidates running for president respond? Garrett Graff, whose book The Threat Matrix, which takes a look at Robert Mueller, joins Neil Katyal and Ted Olson on stage. Katyal is a law professor at Georgetown and helped craft the special counsel rules. Ted Olson has argued more than six dozen cases before the Supreme Court, including Bush versus Gore. Mary Louise Kelly moderates the conversation. She's the co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. Their conversation was held in late June when Mueller's testimony was scheduled to happen July 17th. It was postponed. Now the testimony is scheduled July 24th. Here's Kelly. So I want to kick us off and get just a brief take from each of you. Robert Mueller will testify under oath, on the record, public testimony July 17th. Is there value to this exercise? And if so, what is it? Since Mueller himself says, I've said everything I'm going to say. You've seen my testimony. It's the report. Well, I think that um, he did say, I did the report. We picked our words very carefully, uh, and he is a very, very careful person. He said he selected his words carefully. He said in connection with one of those press conferences that uh, he wouldn't have anything to add to what he said in the report. Uh, He's the kind of person that I think would be reluctant to start trying to explain this report, which is 448 pages something. And and tabbed with post-it notes. Yeah, well, I put those in so you would think that I'd read it. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike most of the other people commenting on it. Well, it's a very comprehensive report. It's very thick. It's very detailed. It's very factual. Uh, I think he says in this report that um, he... um, issued more than 2,800 grand jury subpoenas. That is one heck of a chore. That's a lot of testimony. Executed nearly 500 uh, search and seizure warrants. Obtained more than 230 orders for communication records under federal statutes. Obtained almost 50 pen registers, which is tracking telephone calls. And made 13 requests for information from foreign governments and interviewed approximately 500 Witnesses 80 before a grand jury. So he did, and his staff did, a lot of work. 
So this they, is to my question, though. It's all in there. Why, why does well, he need to testify? Well, that's what he said. I think he's very reluctant to start talking about what he did or trying to explain what he did. He thinks he did the job then. I don't. I mean, I think he felt that he's a private citizen now. He felt that it was respon- his responsibility to respond to a subpoena from um, committees in Congress. But I think, and I don't know, what he will do when he is there is keep very, very close to his report. Now, so, so first of all, thank you all for being here. It's a real privilege to be here with with, uh, with these folks uh, on the panel. Um, I'm, by the way, not at all surprised we're talking about Mueller. I told Kitty Boone last year, the festival organizer, put a panel in for Mueller a year from now, and I will tell you now, put another panel in next year because, on Trump and lawlessness because that's his M.O. So, of course, we're going to be here next year talking about it if he's, you know, maintains the presidency. Um, that's, I think that's what we'll be doing. I do think there's going to be huge value in Mueller's testimony on July 17th, and that's because we are really now a culture much more of video than we are and a pictures Think Instagram than we are of the spo- of the written word. So, just a, a show of hands for those in the room. How many of you have read the actual Mueller report? Okay, so this yeah. is about as sophisticated an audience as exists in the United States, and I think uh, you know maybe ten hands. Um, so, I think if I were to ask you on July 18th, how many of you watched Mueller's testimony? I think almost every hand is going to go up. So. And this becomes important because, look, I do not think Mueller's testimony was inevitable when he wrote his report. Um, when we wrote the special counsel regulations, I, when I was a young pup at the age of 28 when, uh, at the Justice Department when I was tasked by Ms. Reno to write and draft those special counsel regulations, we didn't envision necessarily a final report like the one that Mueller had. The fact that he issued it, I suspect he thought when he wrote it, Game over. I'm done. I really? did. What Can I, I just pause you there for a second? You don't think he knew somewhere in his heart of hearts it was inevitable that Democrats were going to let him just walk away into the sunset? No. Well, I don't think it was inevitable. I think it was inevitable that uh, I think he thought that I've detailed my conclusions and my findings, and uh, you know who knows. But I think I've written it all out. What more would testimony do? My job as a prosecutor is to outline the facts that I saw. The problem was, right after he turned his report in, within 48 hours, you had an attorney general who completely, completely distorted what the report says, up, down, backwards, forwards, sideways, and framed the debate so that so many people now think, oh, the Mueller report clears the president, when the report actually says the opposite. It says, if I could, Mueller says, look, if I could clear the president, I would. I can't. Where was that in Barr's letter 48 hours after? Nowhere. So because of the distortion of the debate engendered by this attorney general, um, uh, I think Mueller's testimony became inevitable, and I think we'll see July 17th, the stark contrast between Barr's spin and Mueller's real kind of by-the-book, careful method, and it's going to be devastating for the president. Garrett, and I should just mention I was remiss when I introduced you in not pointing out that if you want to understand Bob Mueller's thinking and where he comes from and his background, you could do no better than to read Garrett's book uh, on, on Mueller. 
with the title being the threat matrix. The threat matrix. Okay, go on. Value in the exercise of Mueller testifying. What yeah. do we get out of it? Um, I I think that this you know first to. I think I agree with Neil that this was not inevitable and that when you take the step back and sort of look at who Bob Mueller is and what his character is and what his sort of natural disposition is, this is a someone, this is someone who has turned down more interview opportunities and more camera, uh, on-camera appearances than most people get in their entire life in Washington. And that when you sort of look back over his entire time as FBI director, he would give sort of one or two major public speeches a year. You know, he did not do the Sunday shows. He did not sort of participate in the, uh, the TV uh, circus in Washington. And that he didn't do that when he was special counsel. That, you know, he turned down sort of every opportunity he could make to, um, uh, to, uh, to appear before cameras. The three times that uh, something rose to the level of a press conference uh, during his time. Uh, twice he had Rod Rosenstein go out and give the press conference, and once Bill Barr went out and gave his press conference. And uh, Brian Williams actually did this really funny bit, which um, I'll bet Neil uh, saw, where he, um, he's, he actually played a bunch of clips of Bob Mueller talking because he said, you know, if you woke up and uh, if you sort of watched our TV coverage on a daily basis, you would think that Bob Mueller woke up every morning and just walked up and down empty hallways in the Capitol because that's all the video that the nation saw of him for two and a half years was sort of walking up and down the same hallway. And that Mueller clearly didn't want to give, uh, give public remarks, be on camera saying any of this, um, but we've, we've gotten sort of stuck as a country on this logic problem that he has left us, which is I would say Donald Trump is innocent if that's what I thought. I haven't said that, ergo. <laughs> and then sort of we're sort of all stuck on, oh, man, this is a real tough one. I, I don't really know what comes next. Well, and there's a, one addition, right, because it also says in the report, I can't say that you committed a crime, that that's forbidden under these Justice Department opinions. So the ergo implication becomes even stronger. Exactly. And and so I I completely agree with Neil that I think there's going to be tremendous power in him just simply going up, even if he does nothing but read the executive summaries of part one and part two of the report. All right. I'm going to fast forward us all in our time capsule. We are now at July 17th. House Judiciary Committee, I think, gets first shot, and then he will go to House Intelligence. House Judiciary will be focused on part two of the report, which all seven of you who have read it know has to do with obstruction of justice. Intelligence Committee is going to be focused more on the Russian collusion, Russian uh, election interference questions. Um, If you had one question, you got one shot at this, which not everyone will, by the way, because there's so many Democrats and timing constraints. So on the Judiciary Committee, at least, they're saying they will consolidate and not everyone will get a chance to question. What would you ask? What do you want to know that's not in there? Well, one of the things I think is implicit from the report, and by the way, it should be said that prosecutors don't declare people innocent. They investigate They decide whether to prosecute or not, and if they're not going to prosecute, they stop the investigation. They don't say 
someone's innocent. Um, and they don't say, if, if I had found no ability to prosecute, I would have said so. They don't say that. This is an unusual situation where he said the various things he said. He said that with respect, certain things with respect to the so-called collusion issue and certain things with, the, with respect to the, the obstruction issue, and there's a lot in there. But he was not pronouncing guilt or innocence. And it was, so this is not an unusual situation for a prosecutor. He didn't want to put, be put in that situation. I suppose one of the things I would ask him on the record is that there, is there anything that you wanted to do um, I know he wanted to interview the president. The president declined. He accepted that for various reasons. He explains it in the report. But is there any investigation? Is there any person you wanted to investigate? Are there any documents you wanted to see? Is there, is there any aspect of the investigation that you were prohibited or prevented from doing? If so, tell us. So, so from my perspective, the Mueller report lays out pretty clearly that the president committed obstruction of justice just on the facts, and that's what over a 1,000 former federal prosecutors have now said after reading the report, um, which is an extraordinary thing. There are a bunch of Republican prosecutors on there and the like. Um, so I don't like this whole idea that we need to have the full Mueller report. We need to have more stuff from Mueller. I think all Mueller has to do is tell us what the report actually says. Let me give you one very concrete example. The White House counsel is the president's top lawyer, Don McGahn. In the Mueller report, it says the president told McGahn to fire Mueller as a result of this Russia stuff, and McGahn didn't carry it out. I'd want, to know, I'd want just Mueller to tell that story, and then I'd want McGahn up there to answer a simple question, why, when you had a direct order from the President of the United States, your boss, why did you not follow it? There's a very simple reason, which is, I think everyone knows, which is because it would be obstruction of justice. You're firing the prosecutor. You can't do that. Um, and that's why I suspect the President has asserted executive privilege over him again, trying to block him from testifying, because if this is on video, as opposed to that cold piece of paper. If this is on video, it's going to change everything. Just think about the our oral argument last week that many of you saw on the Ninth, uh, the, the ninth Circuit, the, the uh, safe and sanitary conditions. You know, I read a lot of transcripts. Um, that would have gotten me nowhere. But to see it in video, to see a lawyer saying those kinds of things that sleep and toothbrushes aren't necessary, aren't for, for conditions to be safe and sanitary, the same kind of power of video will exist when Mueller testifies and when McGahn does. Um, and, and I think sort of along those lines, Neil, one of the things that we forget when we uh, think back over the history of sort of the previous sets of these proceedings is that it was really the televised proceedings of Watergate that changed the nation's mind about President Nixon. That actually, the public opinion shifted very dramatically over the course of those hearings. And so for all, you know, you hear so much from uh, Capitol Hill of, well, you know, public opinion's already set, they, people aren't paying attention to this. They're not paying attention to it because they, have, they don't really understand it. They don't really know what it actually says. And that I, I think that the Mueller testifying begins that moment when the country sort of has to wrestle with uh, what is actually a very damning document. And I think um, 
that was one of the things that really surprised us as uh, observers or, or as journalists covering this was given Barr's summary and given Barr's re-summary of his summary, um, we sort of all thought that we knew what it said. And then we sort of all started reading it the day it was released, and we're all like, oh, man, this is actually pretty bad. I just before we move on, want to follow up on something you nodded to, Neil, but I just want to let you tell us a little bit about it. You actually wrote the guidelines. That, I mean, you set up the special counsel. Did this work the way it was supposed to? I think largely, yes. I mean, I think the regulations did. Um, you should I mention, think, we were at DOJ then. I was, was, at, your, I was yeah. at the Justice Department between 1998 and 1999. At that point, the Independent Counsel Act was in effect. Ken Starr, my very first day at the Justice Department was the day that Ken Starr's deputies went to Eric Holder and said, can we wire up Linda Tripp? Um, and that led, obviously, to we all know. <laughs> so uh, there was a bipartisan consensus, and this man has done more than anyone I think, to really bring attention to the real evils of the Independent Counsel Act. There is a very famous Supreme Court case called Morrison versus Olson. Olson. Um, and, uh, and Ted bravely fought the constitutionality of that scheme and I think really foresaw the problems with a headless fourth branch of government prosecutor and you know, I'll let him talk about it. But, but we definitely did not want that. At the same time, we didn't want to have a, someone who was just totally within the Justice Department who was subject to control. So that the basic idea was that independence and accountability are mutually exclusive. You, both, you always want to maximize both, but you can't because the more you have of one, the less you have of the other. And the Independent Counsel Act aired very much on the side of independence. We wanted to take a little bit of independence away and more accountability. And generally, I think that worked. Now, we did say if the special counsel was ever overruled by the attorney general, then that would trigger a report to Congress. So there was a way to shed sunlight in. And it evidently appears that this, I think, is related to the question Ted once asked. It appears that the attorney general or the acting attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, never said no to anything that Mueller uh, sought. That's the way, at least, I think, everything that we, the indicia that we have now. I think the one thing that we didn't really anticipate was how much party politics would drive this debate. It's not really about the special counsel regulations. It's really about Congress because, you know, I grew up at a time when I thought, like, if the, if the Democrats engage in wrongdoing, you know, call them out on it. And if the Republicans did, call them out on it. And um, I really feel like, you know, it's become such all just churn through a partisan lens. And I get it if it's, you know, something about someone's personal life. But when we're talking about obstruction of justice, you know, I can't really think of something more serious and something that deserves a real public, a real debate in Congress. Ted, do you want to jump in on this? Did this well, all unfold, well, understanding all of the many twists and turns nobody saw coming, but in the way that it was written well, to proceed? I, I ha- I, I, one of the things is, and Neil can answer this, and I can't, did you contemplate a lengthy 448-page detailed examination of everything that was done? Because as I understand it, and I may be wrong, that it wasn't understood the way those regulations were written. And I think there's, it's important to make this distinction. We were living in an era earlier with an um, independent council provision that was written into this statute as a result of the Nixon administration that created judges 
creating a special prosecutor who would then be sub not be subject to removal, have independence from the Justice Department. Uh, we fought that. The Supreme Court held it to be constitutional. Um, I maintain the view that the Supreme Court was wrong, but that doesn't carry much weight, you know, when the Supreme Court decides these things seven to one. But so... Well, but that one opinion, Justice Scalia dissenting by himself, and I think his first year on the bench, was, I think, the, one of the best opinions in the 20th century, easily. Well, as, as a beneficiary of that opinion, I thought so, too. So... <laughs> Uh, and I think many people feel that there was a lot more, you know, that, that we've learned since then that, that what Justice Scalia said had a lot of value to it. As a result, uh, but, but when, the indep- when that pr- provision for special prosecutors was implemented during the Clinton administration over and over and over again, I think many people on the other side of the political spectrum decided that isn't such a good system. There should be a mechanism. And so the statute that created that officer that independent officer was allowed to lapse. Both Republicans and Democrats agreed with that. And, and then, then lots of other history, but then comes along the Justice Department deciding, well, there may be situations where we feel the Attorney General or the, the inhabitants, uh, in, incumbents in the Justice Department won't be perceived as objective if we investigate maybe the president, maybe the vice president, and so forth. So we'll create this role in the Justice Department where a prosecutor, every, people call it independent counsel, people call it different names. It's a special prosecutor, that's what it is, will be subject at least to the control of the Justice Department, eliminating some of the problems that were raised by the constitutional questions that we debated. But... I was going to ask Neil, and he should talk about this, because I don't think, and, and again, I, I may be wrong, I don't think it was understood that the prosecutor would then lay out in page after page after page a two-year investigation talking about this witness, that witness, what this witness said, and so forth. And I have a different view about whether or not the, uh, an incumbent president could be indicted. And I've testified in front of the Judiciary Committee about that, but that's sort of separate so I want to come back to that issue. quick answer from you, and then I yeah, want to so the, spend So it. the history of this was we had the Democrats saying, because of Lewinsky and, uh, and, Water, and Whitewater, Independent Counsel Act doesn't work. The Republicans were saying it because of Iran-Contra and things that happened to Ted and other folks. Um, and so there was a bipartisan consensus that emerged, but then it had to be replaced with something. Nobody thought you could just get rid of the Independent Counsel Act. So even Ken Starr, as a sitting independent counsel, went up and testified in Congress and said, kill the Independent Counsel Act. It's terrible policy. Okay, so you... Then the question was, what do we replace it with? We replace it with the special counsel regulations. And Ted's right. One of the things we were concerned about was a lengthy and lurid report by the special prosecutor because we'd basically seen that in the form of the Star Report. And so unlike the Independent Counsel Act, which required a lengthy report, the special counsel regulations contemplated a report. And there was flexibility given to the special counsel as to how detailed it would be. If you can't indict someone for some reason, like because they're a sitting president, then you'd expect you're going to have a longer report 
Otherwise, you would let the indictment speak for itself because here Mueller was saying, I can't indict you. He obviously had to detail more of his findings. But, but, I'm sorry to take no, your please. role here, but, but I, I thought that the, the large, a large amount of discretion was vested in the attorney general with respect to the extent to which the report would be made public. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the attorney general and, you know, I, um, I really do think this attorney general has behaved miserably with respect to the Mueller report. But I will say the one thing that he did was release at least a good chunk of it so that people can read it, as all of you have. <laughs> You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you like what you hear, check out our sister podcast, The Bridge. The monthly podcast features revelatory conversations between wise women from different generations. You'll hear about women's rights, sexual and reproductive health, women's leadership, and the status of women's movements today. Guests include Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Aijin Poo, Anyas Benawahu, and others. Find season two of The Bridge in your favorite podcast app. Let's get back to today's conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival stage. Here's Mary Louise Kelly. I'm going to turn us away from the law, though, and toward a... I have a political question. I realize none of y'all are politicians, but you know the ways of Washington, so just roll with us. Gary, you first. Does July 17th mark the beginning of impeachment proceedings? Uh, If impeachment proceedings begin they will begin on July 17th. Um, it, w- w- which I don't really mean as quite that. There we go. Right? <laughs> there we go. Um, and I think sort of my slightly longer answer is I think Democrats are still trying to figure that out. And I, and I think that in some it's ways... another political question. It, it, that, it's yeah, actually... The pros and cons of that. And, and I think part of what Democrats have been struggling with on Capitol Hill is that the House Democrats perhaps even more than Donald Trump, wanted to be able to put the Mueller report in the rearview window, or rearview mirror, that they um, they sort of heard the bar summary. They were like, okay, this is done. You know, Nancy Pelosi has been consistent since January, saying um, she doesn't want impeachment proceedings. Um, as she said, he's not worth it, um, was her direct quote. Um, and that Democrats very much want to turn the page to uh, the 2020 election, which you know we're, is literally playing out at the same time. And I think that what we it, the the challenge is the report is so devastating to the president that the House Democrats uh, and particularly you know the presidential candidates themselves sort of find themselves boxed into having to take some sort of action in part to preserve the prerogatives of Congress. That sort of if we decide that obstruction is a crime that we will settle at the ballot box, I mean, that that sort of begins to write the precedent of what will happen with future presidents and future impeachment proceedings. So so my sense is impeachment's inevitable. Um, And I say that because may not have been once Mueller turned in the report, but because of the actions taken by the White House in the wake of it. 
So they've asserted executive privilege, trying to bar, as we've talked about, Don McGahn from testifying, the president's top White House lawyer. They've also done it with junior lawyers and other people in the White House. They've done it with Hope Kellyanne Hicks. Hope Hicks. They've done it with Kellyanne Conway. Um, this is just kind of ridiculous that they are blocking so much testimony about this from coming out in Congress, and they are forcing Congress's hand to basically impeach, because if you impeach, you have much more... Broad, broad discretion to pierce these privileges. And so I think as a result of these decisions, that's what's going to happen. Um, and I'm not sure that Trump minds that. And it may be politically good for him. I don't know. It doesn't seem like he has much of an agenda besides you know, his wall and tweets. And so impeachment at least allows him to do something and rail against something. Um, so, uh, you know, so I can understand um, Pelosi's concern, um, the speaker's concern. But at the end of the day, I think that's likely to be where we wind up. Um, and it may be a kind of weird thing in which the House impeaches and doesn't go to the Senate, it doesn't get turned over, there could be any number of unusual procedural things that happen, but I do think it'll happen, and I think it'll also happen because really fundamentally, this is a rule of law issue. I mean, what do we send people to Congress for, but for asking a question like this, has our president committed crimes while in office? Ted, I'm going to let you cut in here, but I'll just mention in a moment right after that answer, we're going to open it up to questions from you, so please get your questions ready. I know you have a lot. Ted, impeachment, inevitable, not inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable. I think that's what Nancy Pelosi is talking about and thinking about. I think she's looking at that. What is that going to accomplish? Are we going to, if we do have a vote, Now, I don't think this testimony on July 17th is going to reveal a lot more information. The Mueller report is very thorough. I read you the statistics about how many witnesses and how many searches and seizures and so forth. There's not going to be a whole lot more information discovered as a result of this testimony, especially if Mueller says, I've said it all. I don't have much more to say, and I'm not going to start characterizing. If you want to do that, you can do that. So if there's a process which Nancy Pelosi in as a very smart, keen political instinct for the next election. She wants to win the presidency, but she also wants to retain the House, and she would like to take the Senate. I think she's thinking, how much good is that going to do her party if we conduct these hearings and then we report out an impeachment based upon, everybody says there's horrible, horrible stuff in here. There's a lot of arguments that I'm not going to get engaged in here with respect to intent and corrupt motive and all of those things. But there's going to be then a trial in the House of Representatives, and there's going to be both sides presented, and that's going to take some time. We're talking about we're less than 18 months, I think, away from the next election. So Nancy Pelosi is thinking about, well, what are we going to accomplish with that? It's not going to result in a conviction in the United States Senate. I think she thinks that, and I think if she does think that, she's right. Um, And what is that going to help us or hurt us with respect to the defeat of Donald Trump and the election that that comes in next November? And I think she's thinking, looking back on the Clinton process where Clinton was impeached, he was acquitted, not convicted by the Senate, um, and and his popularity, and he he survived it. So I think that... And I don't know. I'm not a politician. I'm just a lawyer in Washington, D.C., listening to Neil on MSNBC every morning, um, um, saying the same things he's saying here tonight. Um, 
But I, I don't consistent. Think, I don't. I don't think that. I, I actually don't think that there's going to be an impeachment. If there is, there won't be a conviction. And I'm not so sure that that whole process might not help the president. Isn't it so much more interesting when people on a panel disagree? Are you with me? Am I right? Um, just quickly, because I did promise to go to questions, but separate from impeachment, the indictment question. I don't want to move on. You said you're, you're, not, you're not quite there on this notion that a sitting president can't be indicted. Yes, yeah, see, one of the things in the Mueller report is that I didn't go, he says, I didn't go any further with respect to the issue of obstruction of justice because I believed that the Justice Department had said in earlier legal opinions that you can't indict a sitting president, that the only remedy for bad conduct by a sitting president is impeachment. Um, That is an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that goes back into, I think, the Clinton administration. Clinton, Clinton, and then 74. But I testified, and I can't remember the date of it, in the Senate Judiciary Committee that I believe that the Constitution does not preclude the indictment of a sitting president. The Constitution doesn't say that. Every other officer of the United States beside the president can be impeached, I mean, can be indicted. Aaron um, um, Burr was indicted, um, and other officers of the United States throughout history. So all other officers of the United States can be indicted. The president is the only one. It doesn't say anything in the Constitution about immunity for the president uh, from indictment. Um, In fact, it does say in Article 2 that the members of Congress are immune from prosecution with respect to what they do in office. There's a lot, of, and, and the, the Supreme Court and other authorities have held that the president is not immune from civil process requiring to produce documents. The Clinton versus Jones case require, said that the president could be sued civilly. Nixon versus the United States said the president of the United States could be compelled in a criminal proceeding to produce documents. So I think there's a lot of evidence that would support the proposition that a sitting president could be indicted. Now, nobody paid any attention to that opinion when Mueller wrote his report. I didn't see any citation to it, and I'm very pleased that I could stay out of it. But I think that it's an interesting question that's not quite as clear as Mueller assumed. Questions. Uh, We have microphones. I will call on you. Please keep your question short, if you can. Hi. Does the impeachment process carry a statute of limitations? For example, they they don't do it now, but upholding the Constitution, God forbid he gets reelected, can they do it then? Yes. Yes, there is no statute of limitations. This is a political process. The, 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 the Constitution says um, um, uh, an officer of the United States may be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. It, there's no time limit on that. Once a person leaves office, that's the end of impeachment. But at any time when the person is in office, um, the, the House of Representatives can determine in its judgment that high crimes and misdemeanors have been committed, and there's an impeachment. Agreement? Okay. Uh, gentleman in the blue. Is there anything you can tell us about the status of the proceedings in New York, namely the, what the Attorney General of New York is investigating about uh, uh, possible crimes under New York law and what's going on in the Southern District? And if either of those people were to issue indictments, how would that affect Nancy Pelosi's thinking? 
Southern District of New York. Discuss. I'll, I'll take the easy first half of the question, and then the Neil can do the second harder question. Um, so uh, I, I've actually uh, been tracking this pretty closely um, and have kept a running count of the investigations targeting the president. Um, there are sort of, depending on how exactly you define it, uh, 16 criminal investigations uh, targeting the president uh, and, and his inner circle by eight different uh, sets of city, state, and federal prosecutors. Um, the Most of that activity is focused, as you said, in the Southern District um, and in New York State. Uh, where there's insurance fraud investigations, tax fraud investigations, um, uh, potentially bank fraud uh, investigations. Um, but it's not limited to that. Um, New Jersey has an active investigation as to immigration violations at the um, uh, Bedford go uh, Golf Course. Um, that's both a New Jersey state investigation and a federal um, immigration violation investigation. Um, and then there are um, several other investigations. Um, and, and then, you know, don't forget also about the, um, I've lost track now of exactly how many there are, but about 12 Mueller investigations that have been handed off uh, to, uh, spun off to other federal prosecutors that we don't know what the targets of all of those investigations are, although presumably they are not targeting, you know, the president himself. Um, as to how that would, uh, how sort of state uh, charges might impact um, the uh, the president, that's a great question for a lawyer. Uh -huh. Okay, so first of all, I think it's important just from what you just heard, sixteen investigations, criminal investigations. Just to put that in context, I mean. There were no investigations of President Obama or his staff. Um, and this was occurring at a time when, you know, there was Republicans controlled the House and Senate. There were a lot of hostile states to, to the president, to Obama, but nothing. I don't know a single person in the White House who had a lawyer, not a single person lawyered up. Here, like you got at the Trump White House, you got to have like nine different lawyers. They all have, you know, uh, for each person. They are more lawyers than they have people um, working there. And, uh, you know, I do think that that's telling. And I do think that will, you know, particularly as the hearing on July 17th happens, these kinds of statistics, which aren't 2,800 subpoenas, but how many investigations and what they're about are going to start reasserting themselves in the public consciousness. Just let me give you one example, because your question mentioned the Southern District of New York investigation and also state investigations. These are two different things. The Southern District of New York are federal prosecutors. And last fall, just a few months ago, they issued a document that said individual number one, which we now all know to be the president, directed the commission of two federal felonies. That's extraordinary. That has never happened. I mean, outside of Nixon, it's not happened in our lifetimes. Anything like that, to have federal prosecutors submitting something like that. So I do think that these things will have resonance. Then on the state side, um, they're not bound by this Office of Legal Counsel opinion that Ted was talking about, about whether a sitting president can be indicted. They could indict. And indeed, in New York right now, there's civil litigation against Donald Trump by Zervos in a civil case saying, I can go after you civilly in the state of New York. And that case is proceeding. And so, 
you know, it's not inconceivable if there were prosecutors that found uh, wrongdoing on the state level that they could go after the president. And I would sort of add one more thing to Neil uh, in thinking through sort of how unprecedented the criminal territory in which we find ourselves really is historically. Um, I, I ran through a counterfactual uh, at one point this spring of sort of uh, thinking through what the parallel set of charges that Robert Mueller brought against the Trump campaign would have looked like against the Hillary Clinton campaign. And if you sort of imagine the Hillary Clinton as president where campaign chairman John Podesta had been arrested and pleaded guilty to carrying out a $65 million money laundering scheme, deputy campaign chairman uh, Cheryl Mills had been arrested uh, for participating in that same money laundering scheme. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had been arrested uh, and charged with uh, lying to federal investigators and carrying out this sort of very weird uh, or participating in this very weird Turkish kidnapping plot. Huma Abedin had been arrested for a decade-long taxi medallion scheme. I find it hard to believe that Mitch McConnell wouldn't have found time to hold at least one congressional hearing on that level of criminality had it occurred in the Hillary Clinton campaign in an election that Hillary Clinton won, as Neil said, with the help of what Robert Mueller has identified as two separate criminal conspiracies, one directed by the president and the other in which he obstructed justice. Gentleman over here who's had his hand up patiently. Yes. Hi. Thank you. To the attorneys, um, getting back to the impeachment, uh, once that uh, is concluded, or the, during the process or after the process, they vote to impeach, what rights as a defendant does the president have to call on other people to cross-examine, subpoena, uh, or ask for documentation and it, does that enter into a Pelosi decision to proceed with uh, impeachment? I'll start off. Um, in the first place, I think that there would be opportunities in the House of Representatives with respect to impeachment proceedings for the, the minority to call witnesses, and, and the minority would be in, in, in consultation with the president's lawyers and so forth. So there would be evidence and witnesses there. Once there is a decision to impeach in the House of Representatives, it goes to the United States Senate. There is a trial in the United States Senate. We saw this during the Clinton administration. The Constitution requires that that trial be presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States. This happened once before uh, in Andrew Johnson's administration after the Civil War, during that period of time, the president's lawyers and President Clinton's lawyers called witnesses and presented evidence and cross-examined and so forth so that there would be a trial. Um, The rules are made up um, as they go along um, because these, these things are relatively unprecedented, but the rules take place and there will be, in the United States Senate as presently constituted, 
um, and certainly opportunities for the president's representatives and lawyers to provide witnesses and documents and defenses and arguments and that sort of thing and briefs. So that, that would be a full-blown trial. I want to say one more thing about this, separate and apart from your question. As I said, there's 18 months so between now and the next election of president. So what Nancy Pelosi and the House of Representatives and other people who are considering this thing have to consider what is going to be the impact of that on the election? Is it going to be successful? Is it going to, what, what is the outcome politically going to be? What is the outcome legally going to be? Is it better to wait to see what the outcome of the election, because the American public will be voting on this. They will be voting on whether or not this individual should be returned to office. Let's say he is. I know people will be fainting all over the room, but um, that could happen. It happened, you know, two, two and a half years ago. Uh, would there be a different approach to impeachment and that sort of thing? If he is defeated, then what is going to happen with respect to all of this? And is there going to be some momentum in some quarters? Um, and I'm trying to be somewhat neutral about the, the, the possibility and, and things that are going to come along of some people saying, let the people decide. Let's not go through this process of impeachment, drag the country. We have roads to fix. We have borders to problems to solve with immigration and health and all of these other things. I won't go through the litany. You heard it all on the debates just a minute ago. But there are things that need to be done. And if we're going to be concentrating on this, that is going to consume a lot of oxygen. And should we, given the fact that Mueller's report is very, very exhaustive and very critical in many respects. Should we let the American people decide? But people haven't read it. Well, so. well, but they are entitled to read it. And the people of the United States, the Constitution provides for a check on an abusive president. One of them is impeachment. And the other one is election, and we're coming up to that. So, so I yeah. don't think, Ted, that an entitlement to read is going to block the momentum here. And I look, call me naive, and I think you're absolutely right. Some of the politics will be against impeachment. But fundamentally, we are a country built on the rule of law. And that's in our DNA. And I think what happens on July 17th, as Americans start to see what said is I do think that they that this call for impeachment grows and I think it comes not just from Democrats but from Republicans as well. And if you want to ask for my source of faith in that, it's actually you because you have stood for constitutional principle in your life apart from party, not just marriage equality, but even like on this whole question of President Trump and whether he can be indicted. You know, you were the first person, I recall this a couple of years ago, saying, actually, I think a sitting president could be indicted. And I think there's a whole group of people in this country, Republicans, who think this is a lawless president. This is a president who is out of control. He attacks our judiciary. He attacks our media. He attacks everything that constrains him, including the Constitution of the United States. And I think they're going to do something about it. We've got time for a couple more. This gentleman will take it up front here. I have a question for uh, Ted and Neil. Can you speak a little bit about double jeopardy and how it applies to impeachment first, and secondly about state trials, state charges against the president? Well, I'll let Neil talk because he's already started talking about the state trials. Double jeopardy has no, it does not inhibit what the House of the Representative or the Senate will do with respect to impeachment. They, they could do it again and again. It's a, it's a political remedy, uh, and I say that with a small p. 
It's provided as a check in the Constitution to where the House of Representatives and the Senate feels. And now high crimes and misdemeanors never been defined either. And there was a lot of debate about that during the Clinton administration. The issue there was, was it, was it um, arguable that it was a high crime misdemeanor to lie under oath to a grand jury? Um, and, there, and then other people were saying, well, it's just about sex. And so, I mean, the, but, but the fact is that, I mean, I'm not going to repeat, repeat all of that debate. There's a lot of debate about whether or not what conduct justifies the decision by the House to go forward with an impeachment. And the Andrew Johnson thing, part of it had to do with whether or not he refused to go along with the congressional legislation that prevented him from removing the Secretary of War. And he was probably right from a constitutional standpoint there. So there was a lot of controversy that was political there. But double jeopardy would not protect the president at all. So on the state level, so the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment is basically this idea you can't have a do-over. So you can't indict, you know, Ted for murder on Monday, lose your trial against him. You know, he, he is innocent, of course. He's innocent, of course. What do you know that I don't and know? And then after he's declared innocent, he's acquitted. Then on Thursday, try him again. You can't do that. That's double jeopardy. Now there's a big exception, and that's what the question is getting at. What if a state does so? If a state does so, generally there's something called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which allows you to do that. The best example of that is Rodney King. So as you might recall, after those uh, those police officers that beat Rodney King were first tried in state court, they were acquitted. And then the federal government came in and tried them in federal court on federal charges. That case went to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said no double jeopardy problem because it's a different sovereign, federal vis-a-vis the state. And the Supreme Court just last week reaffirmed that doctrine. It looked like it might be actually in some, in some doubt, but they reaffirmed it. And then there's a one tiny other wrinkle, which is the effect of a pardon. So New York had a law until about two weeks ago that said that if you get a federal pardon and that federal pardon happens to encompass crimes that look like the state crimes, then your pardon's good for the state crimes too. New York just repealed that. Total coincidence. Total coincidence. Uh, Yes, ma'am, right here up toward the front. What do you think about the idea that if Mueller testifies and people hear what he has to say and he clarifies what he wrote in his, in his uh, report and people start to get all worked up over it, Republicans also, what do you think the odds are that the Republicans will take a look at this situation and someone will decide to primary um, Trump and the whole thing will fizzle? Um, well, there, there are people primarying Trump. Um, uh, Bill Weld, the former Massachusetts governor, uh, it has a primary campaign going against him. Uh, I, I don't think that that's likely going to end up being the remedy. Um, I, I think what you see in the Republican Party is uh, a party that is solidifying more and more for Donald Trump with every passing month. Um, and, and in some ways, that is also reflective, I think, of a shrinking base. Um, but Donald Trump's approval ratings in, within the Republican Party are still um, you know, around the 90% mark. And that that is, uh, I, I think that um, 
I actually interviewed Bill Weld uh, at a conference a couple uh, weeks ago, uh, and that's a pretty tall order to uh, even if there are large scale defections um, among Republican primary voters, you know, there's still a lot of Trump supporters left there. All right. Uh, one last one. Yes, ma'am, in the yellow right here. Thank you all for being here. I had a question for all four of you of the 16 state um, criminal investigations. How many of those do you think could put Trump behind bars? Um, so I think the the challenge is, um, and, and uh, you know, Neil is the Department of Justice veteran. Uh, the, the challenge is uh, federal prosecutors in general have a pretty high success rate in cases that they bring. Um, the idea that you would go 0 for 16 is pretty, would be pretty remarkable from a legal luck standpoint. So, and I would say the other thing, you know, we've talked so far, the whole discussion, impeachment, which is about a sitting president, or you can't indict a sitting president. We have not talked about the question, what happens when the president is no longer sitting? That barrier, that get-out-of-jail card he's wielding against federal prosecutors expires the minute he's out of office. And, you know, the New York Times reported that that's one of the main reasons he wants to run, because if he runs, he then can get out of jail for longer. Um, And so uh, I do think that's probably why the Southern District uh, filing was written the way it was last fall, to say effectively he's an unindicted co-conspirator and they can't indict him yet, but that it's hanging over his head um, on January 20th. And by the way, I think that, and you guys might disagree because you are actually experienced lawyers, um, but that was one of the things that I think was interesting in the subtext of what Mueller has said in his statement and that he wrote in his report, which is that he saw his role as special counsel as being a fact gatherer and going out there and laying down facts and gathering documents while documents were still able to be gathered and gathering memories when memories were still able to be gathered. Um, And and it sounded to me, at least, that he was laying the groundwork in some ways for future federal prosecutors to maybe come back and pick that up after the president left office. Absolutely. I, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I think any prosecutor can pick up that report and file an indictment on January 21st. It doesn't require any connecting of the dots. It's literally all there. All right, I'm going to exercise moderator's prerogative and award myself the last question, because I'm, I'm interested in just a line or two from each of you, taking us you know, beyond this current fascinating, fraught moment and trying to take the long view on this. Part of my job at NPR is I'm interviewing members of Congress constantly and asking them, are, you know, are we headed toward impeachment? Some of the same questions we've been wrestling with tonight. And I have been struck by more than one from both parties have raised their grandkids in answering questions to me, saying one of the things on their mind as they weigh the way forward is, what do I tell my grandkids? Like, 
what is this going to look like in their civics textbook you know, 20, 30 years from now? What, what will the Mueller chapter say? And understanding that we are not at the end of the Mueller chapter yet, we'll, we will see what developments the next year, year and a half, July 17th, bring to us. But right now, I mean, in terms of what we have learned about, you know, sure, the Trump campaign, Russia, but just the state of our democracy, you know, how does that Mueller chapter start? Garrett. So I, I think it's actually a really interesting way to look at this challenge because I think that that's actually the way that Robert Mueller is looking at this challenge, um, which is I think Mueller is looking at this and his investigation and his report on a time frame completely different than the one that we are measuring sort of the day-to-day politics of this. He's not worried about how this is going to play in November 2020. He's not worried about that. And I think that that's also, by the way, why he was not worried about the 18 days of Bill Barr's misleading summary hanging out there, that he's, he knew what was in his report. He knew the report would become public. He knew that this would come out uh, eventually and that he would be measured sort of against the standard of history. Uh, I think that there is an interesting question for those grandkids historians to weigh as to whether Bob Mueller was too forthright of an individual to be the investigator in this case, whether he was sort of too fair to the president in his language and his legal argument uh, and and sort of too straight-laced. and whether. To buy the book, and whether in this modern political culture, um, a, a different prosecutor um, uh, might have actually indicted everyone and then said, These are very interesting legal questions, and they're questions for the courts to sort out instead of me. Um, what do I want to tell my grandkids? Um, I think that, um, you know, I saw the Democratic debate yesterday, and they're talking about climate and things like that, which are obviously very important. But, but to me, I think I want to look at them and be able to say, I fought this president with everything I had, and I hope all of you share that because this is an unprecedented thing. We have never had a president like this who has such disrespect for the rule of law, disrespect for the Constitution. My parents came here from another country to flee that kind of stuff. And that's, I know, the story of many people in this room. And um, I think that that question will be asked by more and more people as the facts come out. They may not read them. They'll see them on TV. But they'll understand what's going on and take back our country in the way that it was meant to be. Ted. I would. I ought to leave the closing argument to Neil. Um, I would think that we ought to, and my uh, my grandchildren are already grown up. <laughs> Have work, they I'm read the Mueller on, report? I'm working on my great grandchildren now. So, but I. But I. One of the things that I, I do talk about with my kids and my grandchildren and people who ask me about these things is don't take it from me. Um, don't listen to, to my take on the evidence or my take on this political person or that political person because there's been lots of disreputable things done by presidents in our history, not just presidents but vice presidents, secretary of states, and so forth. We've had lots of scandals. 
We have a lot of misbehavior, and I'm not going to start naming recent presidents who have engaged in misbehavior that might have warranted impeachment, might have warranted prosecution. We have had a former vice president, you know, in, in jail for tax evasion and things like that. So what I would say is take a look at the history. Take a, put it in context with what our system of government is coping with, with respect to dealing with either misbehavior or alleged misbehavior with people in office, and is this the kind of republic that was created in 1787, 1789 to deal with these kind of questions? One of the things that I was asked about after the Bush versus Gore election, which was extremely controversial, and many, many people feel that the Supreme Court made the wrong decision, and it was very contentious for 35 weeks, or 35 days, five, week, five weeks, is that at the end of the day, the people in this country accepted the decision of the Supreme Court. They may not have agreed with it. They may have felt that it was egregiously wrong, but they accepted the decision in the Supreme Court. And I gave speeches in England and France and other parts of Europe, and they said the people of the United States did not go into the streets. They accepted the decision. We have, and Ju uh, Justice Breyer has written about this, the Supreme Court itself has made egregiously wrong decisions, Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, and so forth. And Justice Breyer talks about the fact that we do get it wrong. But uh, over time, we strive to get it right. And then we've got a system in this country, including the things we're talking about here with respect to impeachment, and we've got an election coming up. And the, this kind of system that we've got, as flawed as it is, is built to take these kind of strains. And they may be very anguishing uh, in various situations, and particularly now to many, many people. But I, I have faith in this country and its institutions that we will handle this and we will be able to take, tell our great-grandchildren that this is the kind of country, this is the kind of constitution that can deal with men and women who are flawed and are er erroneous and make mistakes and do egregious things, but we can deal with it. To the great-grandchildren, Ted Olson, Neil Catchall, Garrett Graff, thank you. Neil Katyal is an attorney who has argued nearly four dozen cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, including the travel ban case. Garrett Graff heads a cyber journalism initiative at the Aspen Institute. Ted Olson was U.S. Solicitor General and Assistant Attorney General. He has argued cases involving the First Amendment, campaign finance, and same-sex marriage in front of the Supreme Court. Mary Louise Kelly is co-host of All Things Considered on NPR. Previously, she was a national security correspondent. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 27, 2019. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.